Welcome to the Tales of an African Princess in America podcast. My name is Ozzy. podcast we're talking about women's health especially women's health for african-american women women of color out there really really interesting things happening in the media right now and it's just the right time to talk about some of the issues that affect women of color and my guest today is a physician she's an OBGYN, and she's dr ruthie arumala and today she's here to answer some of our questions about why there's so there's such an imbalance in healthcare, especially for women of color so ruthie welcome thank you dr Dr. Ozi, it is my pleasure to be a guest on the Tales of an African Princess in America. Mm-hmm. I saw this name and I was like, well, wait, hold on. Who's talking about me? But uh, <laughs> it's so awesome to be a part of this podcast. And um, it is my pleasure. I can't wait to talk about things that I really know about and I live every day. You're welcome, Ruthie. So tell me a little bit about you. Like, where did you grow up? I know that you are American and you're also Nigerian, but um, did you grow up in Nigeria or were you born in America? I grew up in Nigeria. I grew up in Portakot, Nigeria, and I went to boarding school in Mm -hmm. Oweri, Imo State. I went to Federal Government College, Oweri, for two years. I was the youngest um, student in the entire school. Um, I was in boarding school there, so it was, you know, far from where my parents live. Mm-hmm. And my mom still says that was too harsh a grin, but I insisted, and I've always been he- headstrong. I've always known exactly how I wanted to live my life, mm-hmm. and I have forged through. So, you know, that's where I grew up. And then after that, you know, my parents immigrated to America permanently, and so we were living in Salisbury, Maryland, because my dad is a professor at the uh, University of Maryland Eastern Shore, so we stayed in Salisbury, where I did middle school, uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, left Salisbury and never looked back. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) Um, But I went to University of Maryland College Park. Um, Mm -hmm. Shout out to every Terp out there, yes. (laughs) After my undergrad, I went to Mercer University School of Medicine, where I have a master's in public health, mm-hmm. and that is in Macon, Georgia. And I also did a concomitant uh, health administrative degree at UNC Chapel Hill. Mm. And after that, I went to med school in New Jersey. Um, it was it is now called Roy University School of um, Osteopathic Medicine, where I am, I am a DO. And then after that, I um, went to Georgetown University for my uh, residency in OBGYN. Mm-hmm. And I finished my residency last year and came out to um, Dallas, Texas, where I live now. You make us so proud. I'm so proud to have you on the podcast today because I feel like you are everything that my podcast is about. You're doing amazing things. I think that that's awesome for young girls who are listening to this podcast today. So thank you for coming on the podcast. So you're a doctor now, and I know that you are accomplished. You just recently started your own practice. So congratulations again. Have you always wanted to be a doctor or is that something that you just picked up, you know, along the way? Like, was it expected, you know, as a Nigerian in college, you know, everybody wants to be a doctor or an engineer, you know what I mean? Like, was it like that expectation to be a doctor or did you just really want to go into medicine? I should back up by saying my mom is a physician. Okay. So there have been specific things in my life that pushed me. And I really do think that medicine is a calling for me, mm-hmm. uh, but pushed me towards this. So the first thing is, you know, my mom, she's a geriatrician, 
but she practiced medicine in Nigeria when I lived in Nigeria. So I remember distinctly going to um, the office for her, I, uh, the, not with her, but to, I think our driver took us there to pick her up. Mm-hmm. So I was waiting for her and there was a guy that came in. He had a cut on his finger. And after my mom took care of him, she stitched him up. She like had finished doing the bandages. Then the guy looked at my mom like really weird. Mm-hmm. Like, and basically the reason why he was looking at my mom like that is because he had no money to pay for so I watched my mom pull out all the money from her her bag and she gave him money not just to be able to pay the receptionist because they had a like you had to pay rule but she also cover his transport back home and I saw the type of like interaction she the sacrifice she was making for her patients and you know I wanted that I wanted to impact that you know people like that but then i didn't want to do exactly i felt like every nigerian uh, is it by force mm-hmm. in medicine ah let me try something else so when i at first i thought maybe computer science because you know i'm 33 so at the time when i was in high school computers were becoming a big thing and it looked like the new gold rush like everybody was going into it now it's all it but mm-hmm. you know which will get oversaturated don't get me wrong, all of these fields get oversaturated. I thought maybe I'll go into computer science. So that's kind of like what I was thinking. But in high school, mm-hmm. I, I just found all the sciences so easy. Like, mm-hmm. it was like, I used to, at some point, I used to be like, was I born with this information in my mind? Like, why is it just there? And it just was. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my teachers would be like, they used to call me Dr. A in high school. They were like, they used to say, this is my doctor. I mean, I was that kid that would have been like most likely to succeed things mm-hmm. because people really believed that I was going to be a doctor. And I remember one of my, uh, he died now, but he was my teacher. I was my history teacher, my world history teacher. And he said to me, he said, um, you're going to be a doctor. And, and when you open your own practice and you get your first big paycheck from your practice, you owe me 10% because oh. I said it, I called it, but he's dead now. And he has no kids. So it's not like I can even send the money to his kids. But um, it was really interesting. Like, Everyone just kept pushing me. Mm. And so when I went to college, then, you know, you go from a small town, you get thrown into college. And I was like, I went to a school that had 30,000 undergrad. Wow. And I still did really well in the sciences. I mean, I finished my first degree in two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just very, it just made sense, you mm. know. But I still was trying to like, so my first degree was in exactly what you are, cellular and molecular biology. Mm-hmm. And... I, my second degree was in psychology. So when I was doing psychology, I thought I took a, I took two things at the same time. I did, did two things at the same time. I did research in interpersonal relationships. And at that time, clinical psychology, University of Maryland was number one in the country at that time. Sorry. Yeah. Clinical psychology. So I was working with one of the top researchers in the world at the time. Mm -hmm. And we were doing a research on interpersonal relationships Mm -hmm. and communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the same time, I was taking a introduction to sex, sex ed. Okay. So I thought, oh, this would be cool. I'll be like the first uh, sex Nigerian sex therapist out there. <laughs> and and I and I wrote a dissertation to my parents. <laughs> and I wrote this long, long letter, long, uh-huh. and I put in because I used to write all these things like you know 
to try to implore my my parents to come over to my side. Uh-huh. At one point, my mom was like, this guy, girl, are you sure you're going to be a doctor? You're going to be a lawyer? Putting <laughs> all the, you know, the, all the, all the uh, supporting arguments. Yeah. And so I put these things, I sent it to my parents, and I think I called my dad pop for mm-hmm. the first time. You know, I was trying to sound cool. Yeah. So opened the letter. He must have read it and been very annoyed. The first <laughs> Don't ever call me Pop again. My name is Daddy. <laughs> and then, because he was so annoyed, he was looking for ways to like tell me how crazy I was. Uh-huh. The next thing he said was sex therapy. What is that? What do you know? <laughs> so then I'm realizing what kind of buffoon I'm making of myself, right? Uh-huh. These are traditional Nigerian parents. How am I going to explain to them upon the all the anointing oil my dad has anointed me with? How mm-hmm. am I going to explain to them what I want to do? So right. I let it go, right? And I was like, the next best thing is public health. Mm-hmm. So I went to do my public health degree before I went to medical school. At this point, I'm still fighting the urge. Like, everybody wants me to be this doctor. I'm not sure. So when I was, oh, sorry, I should back up and say an undergrad, I decided to take my MCATs anyway. Okay. The reason why is because there was this huge fear mm. that the MCATs was changing format from um, paper and pencil mm-hmm. to computer. So I took the last paper and pencil August 2006. Okay. So the last paper and pencil MCAT. That's why I'm so surprised people still ask me how to study for MCAT. I don't know. I don't know how to study again. <laughs> so I remember I was, I was dating this guy who was a pharmacist at the time. He was one of those people that did like the six year pharmacy program. So he was like a very young pharmacist, mm-hmm. like 23 or something. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, probably like 19 or 20, studying for the MCATs. And, you know, he would drop me off to study. And one day he was dropping me off and he looked at me. He was like, you know, if you become a doctor, we're not going to be dating anymore, right? I'm not going to marry a doctor. What? And I looked at him and I was like, why? And he said, I'm a pharmacist. You can't be making more money than me. And wow. that was the first time. Any book guy. Wow. It's even funny because he married a doctor at the end of the day. But um, it was very funny because that was the first time I ever had anyone tell me I couldn't be what I wanted to be because my parents never did. They just, they they pretended like I was like everyone. That was the first time Hmm. I ever had anybody in my life tell me, and you know what? The resolve I had, thank you, Chinedu, thank you. Hmm. The resolve I had in my mind is like, I'm going to prove this guy wrong. And not only am I, I'm going to drive a bigger car than him. That was my whole, <laughs> in my whole mind. That was, that's how myopic my view was. Mm. So I studied really, really hard and thank God I did really well. So that MCAT score, which I should say this because we have young girls listening. Mm. That MCAT score actually opened the door for me because I used that MCAT score to apply for my MHA and my MPH. Mm. I didn't take PRE. Okay. I didn't take okay. MCAT. Sometimes you can use a score that's from another test mm. to apply for another program. So you should always ask so you don't have to take multiple tests. Mm. So I took that test. I started, I went and I started my MPH program. I'm at my MPH program and I'm learning about all these diseases Mm -hmm. and I was learning about how they affect a population, hence public health. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know what diabetes was. I didn't know what hypertension was. I didn't know what maternal mortality was. I knew what, how they affected the population, but I didn't know what the disease was. 
Mm. And I was like, how am I going to be driving that big car if I don't know what this is? <laughs> so that's literally why I chose to become a doctor is because I wanted to be an expert in my field. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make sure that I was able to live a legacy on this world. Like I didn't want to walk through the earth. And when I was done, I have nothing to show for it. Mm. So whatever cho- field I chose, I was going to get the highest level of education in that field mm-hmm. and then start to manifest whatever, you know, area that I could live a legacy. Mm. That's so at like 21. I was thinking about living a legacy. legacy. That's amazing. Amazing. And that no surprise that right now you are, you know, you're a doctor, you're a physician, you just opened your own practice. I think that's amazing. I feel like Wow. At the age of 33, that's even mind blowing. So uh, thank you. Thank you for um, giving us a little bit more about you. Okay. So one of the key reasons I invited you on the podcast today is because there's been a lot of conversation in the media lately about the abortion bill. There's been a lot of conversation uh, about how women of color, especially African-American women, um, how they're more likely to die from a pregnancy related complication than a white woman for instance. And so I was like, I need to invite someone who knows a little bit more about this because it's one thing for me to research and find all these numbers online, but it's another thing to have someone who actually practices to come and tell us the truth about it all. And so I feel like you're that person. You're really the plug for us today. So what do you think about this? First off, is it true that women of color are three to four times more likely to experience uh, a pregnancy-related death? Than, an, than a white woman. Is that true? There is a short answer and there's a long answer. The short answer is yes, it okay. is 100% accurate. Hmm. Any medical student who's ever opened their book, it gets you get so appalled as to the number of disorders for which Blacks lead. Mm. And not only do they lead or do we lead, we dominate. I mean, if, if we were giving out money for who has the worst conditions in in the United States, black people be rich. Mm. So it's not just maternal mortality, unfortunately. Mm. You know, let me just point out some other things. If we talk about maternal mortality, you would say, okay, black women have higher mortality and mortality is death rate. Yeah. Not morbidity, which would be like conditions around pregnancy. We're actually talking about death, mm. the final issue, right? Yeah. Black, you compare black women with white women, you would say, okay, maybe it's because there is a socioeconomic discrepancy. Yeah, yeah. So we should say, okay, black women are less educated. Less educated means they're also pulling in less income. Mm-hmm. Not true. A lot of studies that have removed that confounder, mm-hmm. and I found out that well educated black women still have worse birth outcomes than uneducated white women okay so well-educated black women have worse birth outcomes than uneducated white women so well-educated black women have worse birth outcomes than uneducated white women not like we're not even comparing apples and apples you know what i mean yeah. like we're talking about we're talking about it should be way the opposite but it's not. And what brought that to light was Serena. Right, right. Because I say Serena for wealth. You yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, that, sh- that should even out the playing field. We've always thought it did. 
Right. Because when you look at stuff, you know, I have a master's in public health, so I look at epidemiology a lot. Mm -hmm. And you sit there, and a lot of the times, we're looking at socioeconomic status and blaming it for a lot of the health disparities. Right. Here is now a group of people who, even when you control for socioeconomic status, they do worse Mm -hmm. than people in worse social economics so there's got to be a lot more to the story yeah yeah let's talk about things like hiv right does anyone hear about hiv aids in the news anymore not really i don't Mm -mm. and the reason why is because the people who are being most affected are no longer protected groups Mm -hmm. and that is in 100 my opinion now Okay. And so there's some of the things I'm going to talk about that are going to be based on fact. And some of it is based on my opinion. This is based on my opinion. Okay. In the 1980s and 90s, when the most common person who was affected with HIV AIDS was a gay white man, mm-hmm. we had a lot of bills and a lot of news and press around it. But now, 66%. of the new HIV cases amongst all women are Black women. Mm. And HIV AIDS related illness is a leading cause of death for Black women ages 25 to 34. Okay. So why is the news not covering HIV and AIDS anymore? I leave the conclusion up to you because, Mm. you know, I led you to the water, now drink it. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Mm. Now, let's talk about another issue, breast cancer. Breast cancer is so common now. One in eight women are affected by breast cancer. So you probably know somebody that is either a survivor. I know survivors. Mm -hmm. I know victims. Mm -hmm. My aunt was a victim. Mm. So breast cancer, how does it affect Black women? We finally have a victory, guys. Mm. White women are more affected by breast cancer than Black women. Not to be, this is not something to be celebrated because it's still a high rate, but finally, finally, we get to something that black women are affected less than white women. Mm. But unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. Black women die at a faster rate from breast cancer than white women do. How sad is that? So you have a lower incidence. Mm-hmm but a higher mortality rate. So now if it's not social economic factors, if it's, if it's not that black people don't have access to healthcare or the same type of healthcare that other races do, what other factors, what could it be really? If it's not that, what is it? So that's the conundrum because I have read articles after article after article after article. The truth is we don't know or we won't accept. Mm. So I don't know which it is, okay? I read articles that start off by saying, how does patriarchy and racism affect our health? How does, you know, mm-hmm. there are articles that I've read about where a large percentage of, white, uh, of Black women live in food deserts. Mm-hmm. And that leads to the fact that women over 20 years old mm-hmm. of black women over 20 20 years old are considered obese and obesity. You know, we are in a stage which I love this. I love this idea of body positivity 
Mm-hmm. However, that doesn't take away from the facts. Nobody says that if you're overweight or obese, you're not beautiful because that doesn't take away from your beauty. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't take away from your self-worth. Right. And it shouldn't take away from your real worth. However, the facts of fat is that fat is metabolically active. It's not just the fact that it is, there's more of you to go around. Mm-hmm. There is, as a physician, you cannot overlook the fact that fat is metabolically active. It's not benign. Mm. It does a lot. And so it can affect a lot of things. So why, why are people fatter than other groups? Mm. Right. That's part of the issue that has to be dealt with. Are we eating differently? Are we exposed to different types of food? Right, right. Are we eating foods that have no nutritional value hmm. but are addicting? Now, that cannot be all because this is this is the, the the rabbit hole runs really really deep, hmm. really really deep, right? Because we haven't talked, we haven't touched on insurance coverage, right. we haven't talk, touched on health literacy, aka education around health. Okay, we haven't talked about bias and variations in the way that healthcare is delivered to black versus white, white women. Mm. All those things matter. They all do. They matter. And I think that lots of black women just don't have access to care. We are uninsured. We are underinsured. These are issues that go way beyond just one-on-one health care. These are macro level issues. These are issues that should be addressed by the government. They should be addressed by activists and all of us listening. How about hospitals that serve in black dominated areas? Do they provide the same type of health care, the same quality of health care as hospitals in more affluent areas? On the outside looking in, mm-hmm. you have to obviously know that that cannot be the case because most of them are not funded the same way. Right. They are not mm-hmm. paid the same way. Mm-hmm. As a physician, you are implored to practice healthcare without bias, mm-hmm. right? right? You're implored to do that. Do no harm. That's part of our oath that we take. Mm-hmm. But you don't become a different human being because you put on your scrubs and a, and a pager or put on a white coat and a stethoscope mm-hmm. like that doesn't change the ideals that you have personally and it doesn't change the fact that you know your what, what whatever the cultural bias of the time is so i'm not directly answering your question on purpose because i don't think any one person can really answer that question Mm. I think that, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Our numbers are speaking all that needs to be spoken. Right, right. There is a disparity and it needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed because we don't live in a bubble. It's not those people or these people. Mm. It's affecting everybody because the United States obviously doesn't have the best maternal mortality rates in the country. Not even close. We're 30 something. Yet our GDP is high. Okay, so now that we know that that disparity is there, all right, if you go as a black woman and you're pregnant, you know, a lot of 
people who are pregnant right now. I know a friend of mine who is on Facebook posting every day and I feel her pain because she's always saying as a black woman, as a pregnant black woman, she's worried for the kind of care that she's going to get. If you were to speak to women of color today and give them some kind of advice or some kind of guideline as to how to get the best care that they can, possibly can, when they need it. Are there any things that we should be thinking about or what should we as women of color do differently to ensure that we're getting the best care that we can? So that's a really good question and it's a really pertinent question because I think that one of the things that I have realized from practicing is you need to take your health care into, uh, you need to become an active participant in your health care. You have to be an active participant. What does that mean to be an active participant? It means that you need to learn, learn more. So the best place to get information Mm -hmm. is on the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecology's patient page. Okay. So ACOG, A-C-O-G, just Google that. It's going to take you to the website. Okay. They have a patient page. On the patient page, there is a lot, almost any question you could ever think of asking. Mm-hmm. Someone has already asked it, and it's been cataloged there. Okay. The answers are written in easy to read. They're usually one to three pages. I usually actually print it out for my patients because I know that when you get a diagnosis of a new condition, mm-hmm. most people only retain 10 to 20% of what the physician says. Okay. So I want you to be able to go home and look at this piece of paper that I give you so that you can, you can know about it. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. Make sure you're really well educated. Next, make sure you pick a practitioner that is not based on frills, and things like that. Pick a practitioner that one is qualified mm-hmm. and two has your best interest at heart. You can see that this person wants the best for you. You can see that the same way you pick a hairdresser, girl, you don't go in there and just look for any old person with a curling iron. But we're looking for reviews and we're talking you to other people who put their exactly. hair down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that you really do your due diligence in picking the right person. Right. Here's the one thing I should tell you. Board certification and OBGYN is very different. So board certification and board eligibility are things you should look for. I'm board eligible. I'm not board certified. And why is that? I've only graduated a year ago. Okay. So board certification after graduation takes at the minimum two years because you need to collect enough cases to sit for an oral exam. Okay. Because we are surgeons. So we have to collect surgical cases. So just wanted to put that out there. You shouldn't necessarily disqualify someone if they're board eligible and not board certified. Now, if they're not board eligible, that means they've either failed the exam too many times mm. or they are past the window of five years of graduation and have not sat for their board exam. Okay. So those are things to look for. Number three is... Uh, before you go to number three, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Does it help if you get a woman of color as your that's what I was gonna say. Oh, so okay. I think getting a woman of color has its benefits, and that's one of the reasons why I went to OBGYN because I wanted I give care to every single person who either is a woman or used to be a woman. You know, I give health care with no bias, with love, with pure joy in my heart. Mm-hmm. But 
that doesn't mean that everybody's like that. And doesn't mean that every black woman is for you. Right. So does it help? Sure. Because this person presumably knows what you're going through. Mm-hmm. But also you have to also trust your gut. If you're not feeling her, you're not feeling her, sis. Mm. You're just not. Mm. And men, OBGYNs, I'm so sorry to say this, but men OBGYNs may be the best OBGYNs that I have come in contact with. They're usually really, really, really gentle. Hmm. They're usually really, really, really thorough. And they're usually really, really good surgeons. Wow. So don't discount a male. Okay. Okay. That's because, great. Mm-hmm. No, don't discount them. Don't discount a male. Now, I should probably not say this, but I love midwives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love midwives. I don't see them as competition. Mm-hmm. I see them as compadres, <laughs> like colleagues. Mm-hmm. Because I think that a midwife is a really, really good resource and really, really good provider if you have a normal vaginal delivery. Okay. Normal pregnancy, low risk. If I'm still low risk, I probably will have a midwife. Right. But at this rate, it seems like if you're an African-American, you're not really low risk, right? Um, You are if you have a normal pregnancy. So there are lots of low risk black women. What I consider high risk are people with triplets, people with placenta previa. They're, mm. they're actual diagnoses, okay. you know, with hypertension, with, mm. you know, preeclampsia. Those are not low risk okay but low risk fashion delivery midwives are really skilled at what they do you can work with a midwife and then if you become high risk you can move to an OBGYN I think that that's how the practice of OBGYN is going to go the mid-level providers NPs PAs and midwives are going to take care of more normal vaginal deliveries and more mm-hmm. normal patients and they're going to work in conjunction with doctors for or OBGYNs for more complicated at least that's how it was set up in my my residency okay and and there are, there are different midwives have different levels guys they're certified nurse midwives those are the people to go to okay somebody that just all of a sudden starts delivering people out of their basement not cool okay Okay. I do have my, you know, my things about home deliveries, mm-hmm. but, you know, the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists has parameters for them for home deliveries. So that's different. I would say, you know, if it was me, I want to be monitored. That's mm-hmm. all I can say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I got you. Uh, so guys, we've come to the end of today's interview. Uh, we've talked about some of the reasons why African-American women suffer poorer outcomes uh, when it comes to pregnancy. And Dr. Ruthie Arumala has been so gracious to tell us some of the reasons why, as well as some of the things that women need to know about when it comes to their health. Next week, we'll have the concluding episode and we'll talk about the role of doulas. We'll also talk about uh, midwives in pregnancy and the very controversial abortion bill. So tune in next week, Thursday to the Tales of an African Princess in America podcast to listen to that amazing episode. Until then, have an amazing day. Bye-bye.
do you know that about one in every three people in the United States listen to at least one podcast every month? That's millions of people listening. And do you also know that every month, thousands of podcast listeners listen to the Tales of an African Princess in America podcast? Hmm. Well, do you have a business service or event that you would love others to hear about? Then look no further. To promote your services on the podcast, send an email to talesbydroozy at gmail.com today. Or you can visit our website at www.talesofanafricanprincessinamerica.com.